Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today we are welcoming back to the podcast, Bill Hader. We're going to be talking about Season 3 of Barry. But specifically, and we reached out to Bill to see if he was game for this, this weekend's episode, Episode 6, is just an extraordinary episode, 710 North. It's got that chase scene at the end. So we reached out to Bill to see if he was digging into that, and of course he was. So that's what you're about to hear. It's, it's a fun one. And today's podcast is brought to you by HBO. For your Emmy consideration for outstanding drama series and all other categories, the HBO critically acclaimed original series Succession finds Waystar Ryko CEO in a perilous position. Ambushed by his rebellious son Kendall at the end of season two, Logan Roy begins season three scrambling to secure familial, political, and financial allegiances. Tensions rise as a bitter corporate battle threatens to turn into a family civil war. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. The final two episodes of season three really were two of the better hours of TV I've seen in a while. I'm guessing you all have seen this, but if not, yeah, without a doubt, check out uh, season three on HBO Max. And now for Sarah and I's conversation with Bill Hader. Barry's a great show, but you've said this before. It's become somewhat of a playground as a filmmaker for you to try different things. And it feels like this episode, maybe you got a lot of different things that you wanted to try and use as as a big sketch pad here with this one. Yeah, episode six. It's weird how it comes out because it never was supposed to be the crazy episode, but it just kind of shook out that way when we were laying out the season where all of these kind of funny and dramatic and exciting things all kind of coalesced in one episode. That was very interesting and kind of funny. And then also looking at it all at at one and going like, oh, this is this all has to be 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also really hard but it, it actually came out fine you know i rewatched it this morning you don't realize how many I, I you think about the chase but i started going through it there's the beignet guy there's fugue the whole fugue storyline there's it's even stuff like those roommates it's all these little it, there's so much going on in this one that it's it, it's amazing how it all kind of coalesces and yet you, then you have this big huge chase thing at the end yeah we have fugues kind of having this strange kind of something out of like a John Ford movie, <laughs> you know, and uh, the stuff was Sally and Vanessa Bear, which is like the very strange scene with them just making noises. And then, yeah, I mean, the whole opening of it, that whole opening shot, you know, of being on a Fuchs and then coming around, that was kind of designed that morning. It showed up to that location and kind of looked at it and went, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just do this as kind of one long shot with him motivating us past everybody? And DP Carl Hersey saw that the sun was about to come out over this mountain. And so if we could put his head right there, you know, Anthony, who, who plays Sean Taylor, that would be great. Yeah, it feels like long shots are like particularly key to this episode, just in, in terms of the rhythm of, of sort of exploring spaces and also like extending the comedy of that opening where we are suddenly in a John Ford Western or just like even the shot of them after the Banshee meeting that just kind of pokes uh, a glance at them and then just goes and goes and goes. Yeah, the uh, with the train showing up, which happened total by chance. And it was one of those like, please, everybody get your lines right. The train <laughs> pulled in right at the perfect moment. But again, that was hopefully tells a story in my mind of of Sally feeling very small suddenly within this bigger machine. And the same thing with Vanessa Bear. We purposely had her back to 
these windows and we showed up, it was a cloudy day and they said those clouds are going to disperse in about two hours. So I was like, we got to, I would love to have these clouds behind her because it kind of just, again, it gives you the feeling of what she's entering into, you know? But it's funny, you watch so many movies like I do and I've watched a ton of movies growing up. I still do. And it it all kind of comes in by osmosis. So it, it, it isn't until the editor goes, wow, this is like a Western. And then it's like this crazy motorcycle chase. And then there's like <laughs> this weird Hollywood satire in it. And then it kind of ends on this crazy cliffhanger. Yeah. What were you watching and everything? And I just go, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have time to watch anything, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it's all in there someplace. It's impossible not to go out to that desert location and not try to make it look like, you know, the searchers or Sergio Leone movie. Well, the, the, what kind of dictates that style a lot of times is the, the emotion of the characters. And that one, especially the Fuchs stuff was all kind of, him getting this second chance in the season to not the universe wants him to be on a farm with goats with a lovely woman that's what the universe wants and he keeps <laughs> fucking it up because he's angry with barry and so yeah in his mind he's in dances with wolves or something and he's only 20 minutes outside of la as the woman says <laughs> like I find that really funny. My fa- one of my favorite scenes of the entire season is the scene with him and the farmer play in the truck because it, it was played so straight. That actor is amazing, Sal. He's in Full Metal Jacket. He's one of the guys in Full Metal Jacket. He's been around forever. He was in a movie called uh, Midnight Madness that I used to watch all the time. Michael J. Fox, Stephen Fierce movie, first movie. And um, he was wonderful and just played it completely straight, even when he says... My daughter wants to be, I think she wants to be boyfriend, girlfriend. It's uh, a real testament to those two actors to play it straight and not push the comedy. But what was so funny about it to me is that they've only known him for like 30 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they're immediately like, take him in. It's like, you it could not be a better situation for him. And yet he still fucks it up because he's angry. That's a lot of times will dictate the the kind of style of it and not pushing the comedy is always a big thing for me. It's interesting though, because with long takes, you do have less control to a certain degree. And yet you seem to be gravitating towards sometimes, and in this one, even some wider shots too. And what's interesting watching you develop as a filmmaker is how much you are insanely in control of tone or where we are as an audience within these long takes. I mean, obviously great filmmakers get there at that point, but you're not missing a beat or, or where things are. And that seems to be where you are kind of gravitating as a filmmaker is kind of inside the frame to a certain degree. No. Yeah. It's this thing that I think if I was making this stuff when I, you know, was in my early twenties, it would be very much about other films or, and the stories would be about other films and in its way, you know? And then as you get in your forties, like me, life happens (laughs) and life is actually a lot more messier and complicated and interesting than a lot of movies, you know, and, and growing up watching movies, you sometimes feel uh, betrayed. (laughs) Cause you're like, this isn't what I saw in the movies. (laughs) Um, kind of people talk about tone a lot with Barry, but as you live more, you, you see 
that funny and tragic happen right next to each other a lot of times and it's happening every day you know it's like you're having a fun moment and then someone comes in and they read something someone died or whatever you know and you it just suddenly changes the temperature of the room and then within 20 minutes you're laughing again about something else because people don't want to think about the terrible thing or whatever so i think in that regard the i'm, I'm glad i'm making this stuff now you know because i think my if i tried it earlier it would have been uh pastiche <laughs> that's fair <laughs> even more so <laughs> <laughs> not saying what i'm doing now isn't pastiche <laughs> but it would be really pastiche <laughs> no but you definitely see that sort of interplay between something that's funny and then gets a little bit more real and then can can be even funny again like i'm thinking about the chase sequence and when you know we spend a minute with the car salesman and it's funny and then he goes and grabs a shotgun in the same shot and so I'm curious if you were thinking about the chase sequence in those sort of tonal chunks or how you were breaking that down. I'll be honest. It, it just, in the script, if you read the 306 script forever, it just said, Barry gets chased. <laughs> Ends up at Sharon's house. And that was it. Uh, about a year ago, in May of 2021, sat down with this guy, Justin Ball, and Laura Hill, uh, VFX people, and then Aida Rogers, a producer. And I was on Zoom with them and literally just started working it out, saying, okay, so this stapler is Barry's car, and this <laughs> my, this uh, cell phone is one of the motorcycles, and this is another motorcycle. And I was just kind of working it out in terms of shots and just talking it out with them. And as that was happening... It just kind of like the sequence just kind of started to flow where you went, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if he hit one of the guys and the guy flew in through the windshield? And then, yeah, so, oh, he would get on that guy's motorcycle, you know? And then what if they were going? And then what if they got on the freeway? And then I see Aida's eyes get really big, like, oh, fuck, we got to go on the freeway. <laughs> He's going to want to go on the freeway. And initially, there was a thing we cut where they went inside a mailbox, et cetera, where he ran in through a mailbox, et cetera, and the motorcycles went into a mailbox, et cetera. And we cut that for budget. I think what was interesting to me was not making it a, and it was the same thing with Ronnie Lilly, not making it a action sequence was making it more feel a little bit removed. The people I think of is like, um, you know, like Jacques Tacti or something, you know, not, I mean, I'm, you know, mm -hmm. but it's that feeling of watching those things that were funny, but they were very cinematic and there was something very distant about them, especially a Mon Oncle or something like that, or playtime where you're, it's like these wide shots that you're watching things kind of interact with each other and it and it felt at the same time like lived in even though it was kind of chilly it's there was something about it that you know, especially mr hulu's holiday the you know just the use of sound in that movie no score in, in certain moments and just the use of sound was something that i always really enjoyed so for some reason i felt like the shots you know, stunt coordinator and the cameraman was like, oh, you know, if we try this, this will be rad if you do this. And I go, no, rad. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's got to be far back. And I want to feel, I find merging onto freeways to be terrifying. 
I just think it's <laughs> totally terrifying. So I said, well, I just want the feeling of merging onto a freeway and that being, and you're in a motorcycle that's like weak and falling apart and all these cars are rushing past you and feeling the, the structures of the, the freeway, the overpass, like all these things. I mean, it's all kind of intuitive, you know, of what I feel like seeing and, and not seeing. And yeah. <laughs> it's not a great answer. Well, no, no, no. Actually, you hit on the three. Th- we were we, you hit on three things. We were talking about the fact that, like, the motorcycle thing. The terrifying part is just my fear of being on motorcycles. That's why I would never get on a motorcycle on the hot freeways. It just feels like the cars are coming at you all the time, and that's what that shot is. It's also interesting because and it was the first thing that Sarah and I, when we were talking about this this morning, talked about is sound. Yeah, we weren't going to bring up Tati, but, but that clearly the dealership was the one that we were thinking. Oh God, that's the Jacques T shot. But it, it's interesting. The Roy Anderson shot too. Yeah. Oh sure, yeah. Carl, our DP, was like, "Now it's time for the Roy Anderson shot." <laughs> <laughs> But there's a thing here, though, so much of this is brought when you are that distant or you're not going for, as you were telling your team, the rad shot. So much of this is sound and sound design. Even that idea of um, you having that lav on yourself or maybe it's all done voice, but like the, the humming and, and the, or even hearing your breathing. I, I mean, I'm sure you and your team did incredible stuff in post, but I'm wondering just it sounds like to a certain degree you were conceiving this in, in, in to a certain degree in sound. Yes. Yes. I said from the get go, much like Ronnie Lilly was like, I don't want a lot of, I don't want any score. I just want it to feel sound. I want it to feel lived in. And I always feel like those are the best sequences. I feel like sometimes music can really hurt things, you know? And so letting the sound take you into it is what draws me in. And I think having score over that would have been a, it would have made it an action. It would have made it genre. And I, I, did, I, I very clearly was, I don't want this to feel like genre, but I still want it to feel exciting, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it should, you know, you undercut it. It's leading up to the point where the guy yells handoff. And it was so nice to so many people watched it that I was friends with went, oh, the guy's going to grab the machine gun and shoot at Barry. But there's no way that guy would be able to grab it. So it flies off and the guy crashes. And it was like, Oh, yeah, that feels right. And a lot of it's just geography, too. It's just yeah. making sure you know where everything is in terms of space of how far away Barry is from the two people chasing him. And But they're really doing that. They're splitting lanes, for real. The The only VFX cars are the cars in the, pass, the other lane going the other way. Those are real cars that they're going through. They're really doing that, and it gave me a heart attack every time they would do it. <laughs> I did not enjoy it at all. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're good. We're good. You guys don't need to do it again. And they were having a ball and they were like, oh, can we go again? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> but yeah, conceiving it is just kind of you get out there and you just go, oh, this would be interesting. This would be interesting. I remember showing it to another filmmaker friend and him saying, oh, why don't you have different sizes on the riders? And I said, again, that would feel like an action sequence to me. It's like popping into a close-up, popping into, you know, inserts of revving or the feed. Or, you're building it now in the edit, and, and now it's feeling covered in a way that makes it feel like an action sequence. And I, That was something that we also had on our, our list, because it, it doesn't feel like you shot coverage, that you just sort of broke this down and went with it. I don't really like the coverage. I get very annoyed at... I mean, there was something... I remember Brandon Trost, who shot the pilot, said... 
he was looking at my shot list and I was explaining it to him and he said, okay, so you want to shoot this. You don't want to cover it. And I was like, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it's easy to turn into, you know, in Paolo Widobro, who shot the first two seasons, it was okay if we're going to shoot two cameras, the second camera has to get a shot that we would actually use. It's not a right. pose down or grab things that we can build in the edit. I, I just, I don't enjoy that kind of filmmaking. I, I don't like it when I can see it too, you know, where you're just going, oh, they're trying to figure this out in post. But that's one thing to do, Bill, in a, in a, a dialogue scene in, or, you know, in that theater and, and Henry Winkler's theater there and all this stuff. It's another thing to do it on a, a highway chase scene to not have coverage to cut. Cause it's like, you're, I imagine you locked yourself in, in some ways to a certain degree of how long you're in. Th- like you have to wait for the story beat to happen within the frame. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to, but that, it kind of makes everybody, it's like doing a one like we did a big one in episode one this season. And yeah. it just kind of makes everybody, you know, you stay on target, you know, everybody's very on their toes because it's like, yeah, no, this is it. We're not shooting any other coverage. And there was only one shot that I thought would look really interesting of them going into the lane splitting from behind. Because we had these motorcycles that were equipped with cameras that, had like little had mini cranes on them or little mini, you know, booms that they can go up on. And, and the one going behind it just wasn't as dynamic as the one pulling them through the, the lanes. And did you, you said you, the stuff with you is ADR, which isn't a surprise, but did you also conceive of this in terms of the humming and that that would be how we pick you up walking away from the dealership and things like that? I'm sure you thought of it in terms of sound, but how much of this was kind of brought to life in post or versus it just carrying through with the conception? Honestly, I was doing the scene where I was driving the car after the beignets guy. And on one take, I started singing that song, You're My Buddy, You're My Friend. And I was really tired. And it was about 100 degrees outside in the valley. And so I was just uncomfortable. So I was trying to amuse myself. And we just used that take. Then it was like, oh, when I'm on the motorcycle in post, I'll keep the song going. And then when I was walking away, I was like, oh, well, I should do it here. So it's like one, two, three. (laughs) He's just trying to have a nice journey to this house. It was like one take. I sang a song just to do something during the take. And then it, it became a sequence. That's awesome. I wanted to ask about the Banshee meeting and the use of really sound, not dialogue there. Whether it's just that's a detail you pick up on and then you're like, this is a good fit for this scene or whether you're sort of conceiving of like the episode in a larger sense, this is going to be one where people are going to need to really be paying attention to the sounds that people are making and how they're expressing themselves. And have you been in that meeting? Well, I, I assume you've been in that meeting. I assume. <laughs> yeah, that meeting. I always feel, though, in those meetings that I'm I would just be sitting next to my manager going, you guys are speaking a language that I don't understand. And I'm just, I feel so out of the loop, but you're talking about me and it's just very strange. That came from just writing it and trying to think of a funny kind of game that they could be doing and then just being silly and thinking like, oh, what if Morgan on Cherry was like, instead of of it being meh, it was more like meh. And then I thought of Vanessa Bayer and I was like, oh man, Vanessa Bayer in there would be really funny. And it's like, no, no, you know, and then they start answering back and forth. And then I started doing it for the writers and they were like, yeah, okay. (laughs) And uh, the thing we did in that was that 
Jesse Hodges and Vanessa Bear. And, you know, Sarah Goldberg did it too. We end up cutting that scene in half because it was less is more type of thing. You know, that, that's, that scene was cut way down. Initially, it went on, I would say, twice as long. Good Lord. And it just really immediately I went, this overstays its welcome. It's my fault. <laughs> but we need to cut this down. And so then, yeah, we just are taking the actual audio from Vanessa and 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 so when Jesse Hodges is repeating it, we're just that that's Vanessa doing it. And we put it in her mouth. So it it only sounded funny when it was the exact same sound yeah. being said back to you. Because when they would try to mimic each other, it didn't sound the same. So it's wild. Frankie Gutman, the editor, was like, well, let me try to just take these sounds and try to put them in their mouths. And then in the mix, Matt and Elmo and all the guys and, the, the, and Sean and all the geniuses in the sound mix just made it work. Yeah, I'm wondering, this season, and we, I, we, we kept using the word stripped down, but that doesn't seem right because, you know, as we rewatched this episode, this episode's anything but stripped down because there's like nine million things happening. But there is something while you're watching this that feels very distilled. We weren't able to put our finger on it, but it does seem like there was like, it's moving in a certain direction in terms of, of feeling like very focused and like like I said, it doesn't necessarily feel like there's a million things going on. And then when I rewatch it, there is a lot. But in, as you're watching it and the filmmaking, it does feel kind of very a conscious distilling of the story. Or maybe that's just the arc for the season. But I'm wondering if there was a conscious effort in some way of, of how you thought about this season in terms of his approach. I'll, you know, we don't have a lot of time when we're shooting these episodes. And I think have gotten a little bit more confident and coming in, and I say it ad nauseum, simple dynamic way of shooting it, coming in with a very clear plan and kind of saying, this is all we need. Mitch beignets with Mitch. There was like, oh, so clearly we're going to have to have all these, you know, a wide shots and we're at and this and that. And it was like, no, you're on him, you're on them. That's it. And that's all you need. I want to have a frame that showcases the performances the best, that lends itself to the performance. And I also, as an actor, know you wear yourself out performing for a lot of coverage and then you end up seeing it and it's all spliced and cut together. And it's like, I don't recognize what I did. So I think for actors, too, I think it's nice for them to be like, no, this is it. So, yeah, it's kind of just getting the coverage that you absolutely need and making it work. And then on the other side of me, in order to do that is you have to be really tough on the scripts, you know, and making sure you, to your point, like you're getting your story points across. How is this moving things forward? That's kind of the hardest thing, you know, is making sure that like beignets by Mitch initially that wasn't in the script. It, we, we wrote that during production, Duffy Boudreaux and I did this big pass in episode six where we had all these scenes where characters were talking to other characters about what they were going through. It was like Sally with her agent, Barry and his roommates. But I think, God, who is no, oh, no, Hank, I think we had him talking to a guy in a park. Like, it made no sense where he was just talking to someone. We just went, I think, God, wouldn't it be nice if, if they were all talking to the same person? And that person kind of just personified, I don't know, it was just like a California type of person. You know, like an L.A. type of person. And then so... Yeah, Beignets by Mitch kind of came out of that. And then, the, you know, if you look at the line of Beignets by Mitch, no one's with anybody. 
it was always just single people standing behind. So to me, it was kind of like a, um, you know, like Knights of Kiberia where they go to like, you know, or, or any of these Italian movies that Broadway Danny Rose does it really, you know, they go up to like the, the town, like mystic or towns, you know, soothsayer or like the therapist or whatever to be like, can you help me? You know what I mean? And, and that that's who in LA, that's what Mitch, you know, beignets by Mitch would be. Once we kind of figured that out, it was just very simple. It's just like, it's a lot of work and a lot of work to just make it as simple as possible. And in order to do that, you know, you have to, it has to be super messy and too packed. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. One of the luxuries, I think, if I remember this correctly, with this show is being able to do second passes, to go back through, right? Because that doesn't happen in a lot of TV. When you're talking about really trying to get that writing down, that is uh, that is something that's part of, maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but the part of the process on Barry is that ability to kind of go through things again, right? Uh, yes. On Barry, it's eight episodes, and we spend a lot of time just honing eight episodes. Like we wrote a version of season three that was done and then the pandemic happened and then we rewrote the whole thing or rewrote a good chunk of it and then started shooting that. And then in that we have rehearsals and then during those rehearsals we're rewriting and the rehearsal isn't like we're all up on our feet acting. The rehearsals are us sitting around a table, reading it out and me talking to the actors going, how do you feel about this? What do you think of this? Is this working? Is this not working for you? Trying certain things and being like, well, what if we lose this line and move this here and do this here? So when we're all on set, we're all on the same page and we're not having moments of getting on set and someone going, I'm not going to say that, or I don't get what am I, what I'm, what am I doing right now in that process? You get to a thing where you like in episode six going, God, we have all these scenes of people just saying, like, here's what I'm going through. They should just say it to the same person, right? And you get to Mitch. And his wonderful beignets. (laughs) And I have to imagine that that being able to sort of work through that, all of the intention and and sort of the arcs in, in the writing process gives you a little bit more freedom to play with the visuals once you like get to a location you're like oh okay i'm not worried about how this is going to work let me worry about what can we do what can we bring to it yeah and and visuals supporting the story because you understand the story so well it's amazing i've been on movies and i've been on teledis where you're making stuff and no one really understands what they're making and sometimes things like that turn out great it's pretty nerve-wracking especially when you have all those people there and it's a lot of money I'm much more into like planning and having more time for prep. And especially because I'm acting in it, I have to have the energy to be doing that. Yeah. So doing all this prep work ahead of time helps. But as far as visuals, like you said, it's it's being able to then say, oh, let's start this with Fuchs looking out of the desert because desert is kind of his domain. That's the desert visually has always been like where the crime stuff happens, yeah. you know? The desert's always felt like where Barry is his violent self. And Ronnie Lilly, you had all those people meeting in the desert and he comes home to Fuchs in the desert. Like all that is on purpose. It's like, oh, him looking out, like that's a great image. And then him <laughs> then him finding salvation in the, in the desert and fucking it up, you know? Yeah. Well, this is the first, usually we do this after we get to see all eight, but we loved episode six so much. But I, I, I guess I... 
you know, so Sarah and I haven't seen seven and eight, right? Sarah, you have we haven't given it, right? You haven't seen it, right? And no. you, you did you did those two. And we're not looking for spoilers, just that's not what this podcast is about. But but you did direct the, the two after this one too. So was, I, I, this is kind of when you were looking at this season, did you is maybe it just makes sense for you to do the end, or were you really looking at these last three as a chunk of something that you really wanted to take on? Yeah, the, the last three do kind of ramp into something, but I, I feel like six is like in a way where the fun stops. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say our, uh, I talked to our colorist who was coloring the last episode and he said, I had to go on a couple of walks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough one, but yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to, you know, I always see these as like one, like a big movie with like these things split up or or when I'd read a great book and it would be split up, but it wasn't necessarily like television where it's kind of a broader scope. I always sure. like that with Barry, it's like these five people that we're really focusing on. And then it that's how they intertwine and how they're all kind of going through the same thing and everything in various ways. But six, seven and eight are, I do feel like of a piece uh, spoiler, as if, as if as you didn't know, this doesn't go well for Barry. <laughs> I, guess this, <laughs> I was talking to someone about this the other day where it was like, you know, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen on Barry and I don't know what's going to happen on Better Call Saul, but it's all going in one direction. Like I kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little stressed. I know, I know this is going in one direction. Yeah. People get really stressed out watching the show. Yeah. I know people come up to me saying like, I had to go back on Lexapro because of <laughs> and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I think it, I think it is stressful but i honestly i've been thinking about this because i've had this parallel experience with uh bear call so i think it's it once again i don't know where this is going but i i do have a sense that things are going in one direction for this character this guy is not going to get out of his own way here yeah i mean just the hardest thing about writing the show i mean we're doing it right now because we're working on the next season and a lot of times we'll outline stuff or we'll write scripts where we have things that are very plotty and so much it's like how can we turn this plot thing into something that's done it's the character driven and it's from an emotion in the character that makes this thing happen as opposed to this mouse trap thing. That's the hardest stuff with this. And I think sometimes I think that's why that stressfulness comes out hopefully as if you relate to the people. No, absolutely. I'm curious if you have like a good example of, of, and maybe, you know, Benye Mitch is a good example of trying to organize plot in a way that elevates character as opposed to just setting the table for things to happen. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a version of Fuchs being out there at that ranch that could have been that you could have had Jim Moss, Janice Moss's dad, call and say, hey, I'm looking for this. And he goes, oh, OK, well, I need to go figure that out. It's a character coming out, grabbing him and pulling him into the, another story. What was more interesting was the guy calls and he says, I'm fine. <laughs> like, leave me alone. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy. And then him seeing the sign from God of this headline, this newspaper, and him making the decision to go do that. Right. Is stronger. That makes sense. That turn is always a thing that we're constantly looking for. Kusno needs to go to this dinner in episode five and have Laura San Giacomo say, fuck you. Yeah. And he has to make it himself to go to her and go, hey, I have this opportunity. I'll give you everything. You know know what I mean? So it's like just trying to keep it motivated by character 
we're dealing with it right now where so much it's like other forces are making them do things and you go this is lazy <laughs> no for sure it's driven by them sometimes literally and that's that's i think even if you know wh- why something is going downhill you still want to watch it because it's these people ultimately making their own decisions yeah you it it's so much so much stronger when it's their decisions it's so much stronger than you know, Cristobal making the decision to like not tell Hank about that he's married to a, a woman and what that leads to. I think the beignets by Mitch scene was a way of being able to be like, here's where everyone's at in a funny way. And that beignets by Mitch is actually giving them really good advice and they're not listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if, they had, if Barry had listened to beignets by Mitch... If he listened to Mitch, she wouldn't have gone to that house and everything would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Bill, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so you're in the writer, you're in season four writer's room right now. Is that what you guys, you guys are doing? Yeah. Me and Duffy Boudreau and Liz Tharnoff sitting around staring at each other, <laughs> trying to make sense out of this story meanwhile you're dropping episodes in which you've cracked it and you figured it out it's lean it's like we gotta do it like that it's like you're so far on the other side of the process oh of, my uh, god yeah it, yeah you, you yeah you you <laughs> the one nice thing is you kind of know the process well enough to go like okay this is good today and it yeah, will yeah. get better today this is where we landed on this but i know once the actors read it once other people read it blah 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 da, 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 it starts to get better and then you yeah you you hit on something like beignets by mitch and then the beignets is a thing that she serves him at the end and that's why he you know all that stuff or albert going to her that was a reshoot that we shot initially albert was just talking to her to sharon and then in the reshoots we shot the scene in the police office where they're looking, it's like, you're not telling me Rumpelstiltskin, whatever, can do this. And he's like, whoever did this yeah. must have been military trained and then realizing like, oh shit, you know? And that's the reason he goes to Barry. That was never in any of the scripts. It wasn't when we shot it. It wasn't until I looked at cuts in January that I went, why is he going to her? <laughs> and the editor going like, yeah, I don't get why he's just going to her for no reason. And I was like, I just, because I don't know what I'm doing. All right, let's go reshoot this. Let's add this, you know. So. Well, it, it keeps getting better. It's, uh, just congratulations to oh, you and the team you, on this thank season. You. Yeah, I hope you guys dig the next two. They're um, a lot of fun. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, guys. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hacks. For your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other categories, the critically acclaimed HBO Max series Hacks, starring Gene Smart, explores a darkly comedic mentorship that forms between Emma Vance, a legendary Las Vegas comedian, and an entitled outcast 25-year-old writer, played by Hannah Eimender. In the new season, the relationship continues to evolve as the two travel across the country workshopping Deborah's new stand-up act. New episodes are available on HBO Max. Before we sign off, I want to let you know that next week we're going to have Natasha Leone and Sarah talking about uh, Russian Doll. And, you know, something I don't do enough, just want to remind you, all the music for this podcast is by the uh, great composer Nathan Halpern.